I realize now I I don't know what Alex Jones's thoughts on any of these issues oh, are. Oh God, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm sure we can find that out. Oh. Uh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. Here we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining me today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello. Brandon Kenny. Hello. And Kurt Gunner. Hi, everyone. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So our second episode takes us further into the beginning of the Donald Trump foreign policy world. The initial doom and gloom reactions of much of the country have quieted down, but questions regarding critical Trump administration cabinet picks, such as Secretary of State, remain. Some are also questioning, questioning the ability of the new administration to navigate touchy political subjects, as shown in Trump's phone call to the Taiwanese government, causing tensions in relations with China. Finally, the administration and several of Trump's cabinet picks have come under fire for their potential ties with, or friendliness towards, Russia. With that in mind, let's pick up where we left off in the last episode, with a discussion of Trump and the Russian government. So Russia has been trying to assert itself on the global stage in recent years, and many believe that a Russian resurgence is at hand. Trump has been criticized for his close business ties to Russia and his praise of President Vladimir Putin. Retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who recently accepted a position as Trump's national security advisor, has been especially controversial after several visits to and potential payments from the Russian government. Finally, it is highly suspected that the Russian government was behind this year's hack of the DNC, and that the emails obtained were given to the WikiLeaks organization in an attempt to discredit Hillary Clinton. So, is Donald the quote-unquote puppet of Putin, or do these possible ties mean that a true American-Russian reset of relations could be imminent? What do we know about the future of U.S.-Russian relations? I'm so glad you said reset, because... As we all realize, or all remember, the amazing and well-thought-out Obama-Putin reset of, what was it, eight years ago now, or seven years ago? I can't remember, but that worked out perfectly for everyone involved, so I think it's a great thing that we're going to try it again. Although, I will oppose the idea that Donald Trump is the puppet of Putin, as a, uh, I was reading an article, and it pointed out fairly correctly that a lot of these hacks that happened to the DNC, that happened to the Democratic Party, happened before anyone could possibly know that uh, Trump would be the presumptive nominee and obviously the president of the United States. Yeah, that's a good point. So... I, I definitely think they were intending to undermine the U.S. democracy by just basically bashing anyone who came in. I think this was an opportunity that they've taken advantage of, and I think that Putin, as some administration officials, or Putin, I'm sorry, Trump, as some administration officials, officials have said, is kind of a useful idiot right now in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, I kind of second the idea of, of 
Putin is basically just an opportunistic guy um, and less of a grand plan and more of a, hey, this is kind of nice for me. Let's see where this goes, um, which would kind of mirror his actions in the Crimea. Uh, this isn't some sort of 10-year uh, complicated chess move as much as a really realistic reading of the situation and the understanding that there's no one to conflict or to really um, counteract his military strength in the region. Um, and it's interesting you said the word reset as well, because uh, a few months ago I reread Stephen Kinzer's uh, reset on Iran, Turkey, and America's future. And what's interesting is that the whole thing is arguing kind of what, what we tried with what Obama tried, uh, is just restarting our our relations with Iran from scratch and looking at Turkey and Iran as potential progressive uh, forces in the region. And <laughs> I like Stephen Kinzer a lot. Uh this prediction didn't quite work out because his advice wasn't quite taken. But both, I mean, Turkey and Iran have had different paths to this, but in Turkey especially, has become more, I guess we'd call it authoritarian, right? Something like that. Very uh, much. The past so. couple of years, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with um, the assertion of a reset. And that's kind of why I picked that, is I want it to be at least reminiscent of the attempted reset from about eight years ago. Um, it's interesting. Obviously, I don't think that Putin or that uh, Trump is a puppet either. I just think that it's a good way to start out the segment. And, you know, it's it's catchy, so people like it, apparently. Mm. But um, one question I have is, is, does this give the United States an excuse to sort of backtrack on some of the previous um, mistakes that we've made? I mean, it looks like Trump is really interested in kind of just getting out of Syria and resetting relations with Russia and maybe even warming up on ties with Turkey, um, you know, does this give us a, a way to kind of reset and recal recalibrate and figure out, well, maybe what's been the way to move forward for the past eight years is now something that we should change, and so we can look forward to the next four years, correct those mistakes, and try something different. I really wish that that was the case, and I oh, I really hope that is the case. But the foreign policy of Trump before he's even gotten into office so far has kind of belied that he doesn't have a real plan in place. He's taking random calls, promising uns unqualified support for people with nuclear weapons that have authorized them, that have authorized their battlefield commanders to use them against Indian troops, making calls to uh, what who Taiwan. And pissing off China, but not understanding why China's pissed off. And don't forget, I don't pa think don't forget Pakistan. Oh yeah, and that was the uh, authorization of yeah, uh, yeah. battlefield nukes there. And it's I I don't understand what his kind of purpose is, and I think that might be because he doesn't really have a purpose. As John Kerry actually said just about two hours ago, when he was talking at the Saban uh, Saban conference. He has not even talked with a single Trump administration official once yet. The Secretary of State, 45 days into transition, has not talked about foreign policy to the Trump administration. And the Trump administration kind of responded to this by saying that, oh, it's okay, we're getting almost daily security briefing updates, and that's, that's fine and all's well, but that's not the same as having a coherent diplomacy or having a coherent strategy going forward. And, and are they getting those briefings? I think there's yeah. rumors that they're not accepting them or not seeking them out, and that there's a bunch of briefings just kind of waiting to be given. Uh, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> I mean, 
I think the the core of what we're getting at is that um, that there's it's very likely little strategy happening here, um, which fits with my larger worldview that uh, when in doubt, assume people are being stupid, and <laughs> that this isn't some grand plan, but that people are just <laughs> doing their own thing. And I think in Trump's case, we're finding out that he literally has no idea what he's doing. Uh, and I mean, the the call with the pack with, with Nawaz um, is it Nawaz Sharif, the, the Pakistani yes uh, uh, prime minister, and um, the call was just it was the like you could kind of feel the student who didn't do the homework once again coming out. <laughs> you know, this is a fantastic people. You do fantastic. You're all fantastic. I'd love to visit your country. All the Pakistanis I've met have been great, and it's kind of like there were no. This is the sort of thing you look for when you're grading papers, right? There was no reference to the act to any actual uh, knowledge of Pakistan as a nation, or any Pakistani policy, or any relations between U.S. and 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 Pakistani foreign policy. And so he's just kind of saying whatever he can to fill in that space and to be polite. And that means saying you're fantastic. What a fantastic guy! Uh, it's kind of like I imagine other foreign leaders are intelligent enough to pick up on this, right? Like, we can all kind of tell when someone didn't read our Christmas card and is just saying, oh, what a great card, but did you notice the part about how, you know, I'm really sick? And No, I, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, you're fantastic, right? Like, we assume that they can pick up on this and, and act accordingly, but I don't know. It, it just seems like this is going to be a calamitous series of mistakes rather than a kind of horrible authoritarian fascistic takeover of American democracy. It's kind of terrifying, too, to think about that uh, although Trump had uh, obliquely kind of referenced that he wouldn't be doing tons of foreign policy stuff, he'd be handing it off to other people, and it'd be the experts that take care of all this sort of stuff. That's why he's nominating generals, and he had Mike Pence, who's apparently some foreign policy whiz who's not. (laughs) And he's very much showing that he might be in the driver's seat for this foreign policy, even though he had said that he's going to reference the experts. There is no way an expert in hell would have uh, would have told him to promise Pakistan unconditional aid. There's no one, not it, not the dumbest battlefield commander there is. No one would have promised that. It's 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 worth wondering. Where is Donald Trump getting his information? Because it doesn't seem, as, as was already mentioned, that he's taking his intelligence briefings. Uh, furthermore, it, um, what his Kellyanne Conway, um, in response to a question by Chris Wallace on Fox News about this, whether or not he was taking it, said, oh, he's not skipping all of them, but he is getting information from credible sources. Uh, up to this point, we don't know where he seems to be getting his information. When he is getting intelligence briefings, he seems to be ignoring them if... Uh, there was an article, uh, you know, an old article uh, by Kurt Eichenwald, if you like him or not. Um, so should be this one should be taken with a grain of salt, um, suggesting that Donald Trump knew about you know, hacks of the DNC um, and yet pretended not to, or even said, it, you're making these things up uh, back during the presidential debates. So there, first of all, we don't know where he's getting informa- his information. Second, we don't know how he's interpreting you know, the good or bad information that he's even getting. It's it's a big old mess. And I think that it'd be worth mentioning, too, that uh, Prime Minister um, Netanyahu actually spoke at the Saban conference as well, and one of the things that he pointed out was that during his talks with 
Trump so far, he has interpreted it as Trump will be much more active in the region of the Middle East, which is obviously the region we are very um, concerned about right now. And I think that that just took me aback when I heard it, because there's been nothing that he has said so far that leads me to believe in the slightest that he wants to be more involved in the Middle East, and now he's promising unconditional support to Pakistan. He's telling the Israeli Prime Minister things that make the Israeli Prime Minister hedge on U.S. involvement in the future, and that's a big, big thing for people who don't really, I guess, follow Israeli-American um, relations, because if, the Isra if Israel believes that it has U.S. backing for basically all of its adventures and that the U.S. will be much more active in the region, that engenders a much more aggressive U.S. policy, in the, or U.S., I'm sorry, much more aggressive Israeli policy in the region because they have that net. They have the believed net in the back of them that will catch them if they go too far. It's kind of hard to picture a more aggressive Israeli policy. I guess that just means even more settlements and even more forceful retribution. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine how Palestinians will respond to that. Well, and I think it's, uh, he's been very, very, or I shouldn't say he, Israel has been very, very constrained in their actions regarding Syria. I mean, you have Israel bombing convoys going to Hezbollah every once in a while, but that seems to be about the much of it. And I don't know if this might mean that Israel feels that they can take a more aggressive approach in countering that uh, Iranian influence in Syria, or that they will take a more influential approach to other different countries. I, it's really hard to tell. Well, I guess back to the thought of um, Donald Trump, you know, where is he getting his information from? Um, I do believe that he is still, he is receiving the president's daily brief now. So um, he should at least be getting some verified intelligence from verified intelligence sources. I guess one thing that I'm wondering <laughs> is, I mean, they have to be writing this for a Trump audience, right? Like the, the people at the CIA, the NSA, the people who are compiling the president's daily brief, knowing now that Donald is also reading it, would have an eye towards what is he going to, how is he going to interpret this and what could he possibly do because of it? So I guess it's my hope that the intelligence community would be smart enough to write this for a Trump audience, knowing how he tends to react to the way certain things are phrased. But how does he react to the way that certain things are phrased? I mean, you've seen him run the gambit of emotional responses to different things. You're amazing! You're evil! You're great! But you're dead! It's, you don't know what he's going to say to any given response, other than, unless it's flattering in each one of these intelligence briefings, it goes, the great and or beneficent Donald Trump can do X, Y, and Z in the Middle East. That might get him tickle his fancy a little bit, but other than that... I wonder if it's more just keeping his attention span in mind and making sure you write everything <laughs> in 140 characters or less. Oh, dear sweet God, you're right. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you say that, I think that's actually a really good point, though. Mm -hmm is that they're going to have to write it in a way that is very quick and concise and just to the point, here's what's happening, here are the options, no more than that. Because anything else, and, you know, he's just going to lose patience. But in those regards, I mean, that's not too dissimilar from previous administrations either. I mean, you had 
policymakers over the entire course of U.S. well over the course of the nineteenth or twentieth century, I should say, that came out with these really short little things like the um, long telegram, which wasn't super long in and of itself, but it was short enough to be read by everyone. And then you have things much longer policy proposals, and the first one that jumps to my mind is uh, the Obamacare. And much larger proposals that policy re- policymakers are just much too lazy to read through the entire thing. And it's not that they're just too lazy. I shouldn't say that. That's not fair. The uh, Healthcare Act was over a thousand pages. But they're too busy to read anything more than these concise little snippets of things. I'm just not sure how much room that leaves for making it any more concise. Well, and uh, I've been watching The Crown, which is pretty good on Netflix, um, with John John Lithgow playing uh, Mr. Churchill. And at one point, it, which is weird because Lithgow is far too tall for that, but uh, at one point he says, as Churchill, you know, um, there's no policy or nothing you can't explain in 20 minutes, nothing you can't condense down in 20 minutes. And I kind of thought, well, that's why he kind of fucked up the Middle East so bad, because he thinks yeah. he can summarize all this stuff in 20 minutes, India, and when you get yeah. 20, to minute 22, he's already moved on. Uh, and I'm I'm worried because, uh, I mean, having someone like Winston Churchill explain something in 20 minutes uh, for all of his faults uh, would at the very least mean it was pretty well thought out. Um, I imagine that trying to summarize something for Trump in uh, a few sentences isn't so much that you can think it out, it's that he has to then interpret that very, very succinct uh, summary and turn it into policy or turn it into a decision that he can then say that he made. So there's going to be a lot of stuff lost in translation. Uh, and in a place like the Middle East, which is, of course, the, the topic of our podcast, um, there's just a lot of nuance. And I'm I'm frankly terrified that he's going to mix up who his allies are and piss someone off or bomb, like literally just order the bombing of the wrong place. And it's going to be up to the the structure of the State Department and our different government apparatuses to, you know, withstand his bad decision making. Well, it's the kind of question where you could reasonably see him saying something to the effect of, well, hey, Israel, I hear you're building a wall. I'm great at it. Let me help you. And he would have no idea why that would upset Palestinians or people in the greater Middle East in general. Hey, speaking on that issue real quick, sorry, but uh, apparently there is a proposal between the United States right now and Jordan to build a wall, a modern wall between uh, any of the Palestinian areas and Jordan. Just wanted to point that out. Woof. That's a thing. I guess, what do we expect Russia to gain or potentially lose from a Trump presidency? Do we think that he's going to make a lot of gains, say, in the Middle East or in Eastern Europe? I think that one of the big places that should uh, concern our little group here is in Egypt. And that is because the U.S. influence in Egypt is waning and understandably, because there was a military coup there, we shouldn't condemn military coup, or condemn, I'm sorry, we shouldn't, uh, I don't know, acquiesce to military coups, etc., etc. But that means that Russia, which has no problem with coups, with dictatorships, etc., is moving in there and has sold, I think it's uh, $25 million worth of equipment to Egypt. They're providing, no, $25 million for the building or uh, building of a nuclear reactor in Egypt, uh, $2.5 million for 
uh, weapons. I could be wrong on these numbers, but I know the facts are as they stand right. And uh, Russia's gaining a lot of influence in Egypt. And I think that also another place that... And Kurt, I'd like you to talk a little bit more on this one, is uh, influence in Turkey. Obviously, there are some nuances in Turkey that I am not aware of. But I know that there is a tacit agreement right now between Assad, Turkey, and Russia, where Turkey's actually starting to back off on uh, basically the demands that Assad be out, and with Russia's acquiescence, basically have a border zone, a buffer zone, to keep the Kurds out that have kind of taken over the northern part of Syria. Where do you think that'll lead? Yeah, it's hard to tell. Um... I think uh, my understanding of Erdogan's mentality is that he can't really share power with people, which was kind of the whole UN split, split that led to, or didn't lead to, or was made up about the coup. We'll find out in 20 years, I guess. But um, I, I can't. I just can't imagine um, Erdogan working with Putin in anything outside of a pragmatic way. And for now, I guess um, he and, and Putin and Assad will triangulate their needs and find some way to make sure that people get a chunk of what they want. Um, if I'm being honest, I, I imagine that there will be uh, some more militarized conflict, or at least, or at least you know, what's, what's the term? Saber rattling? Um, at least some kind of threats back and forth as Assad does or doesn't do things that Erdogan doesn't like. And I mean, I've heard rumors that, uh, oh, the war is going to start back up again. Erdogan's going to invade. Then you know, Erdogan and Assad have a alliance. And, you know, neither of these two things are probably true. The truth is somewhere in the middle, but it's long term. It just seems like someone is going to feel like their sandbox has been encroached upon and that someone is going to have a very militarized state and full control over their military. In Erdogan's case, jailing any dissidents and Assad's case, killing them. And I guess Putin's case, too, though, that's less documented. Um, and each of these three people are very willing and able to commit military forces to control what they believe to be their territory. So I just want to clarify that you don't believe that the influence that people perceive to be, I guess, the Russian influence that people perceive to be increasing over Turkey can be a long-term sort of influence. I do not, no. Um, I, again, this is just my personal reading of of Erdogan as a, as a statesman. Um, I think that he is pragmatic in the same way that Putin is. And I think that he makes a lot of efforts to, um, what's the word? Like he will make these relationships strong as long as they work for him. But as soon as he feels like a person is trying to leverage their power against him, uh, it leads to a strong reaction or overreaction. And it's only a matter of time till that happens. I can't, I don't think Putin is going to be able to play that game very long, or even if he's playing it now, it just seems like a matter of time until one of those three men feels that they've been betrayed or crossed over in some way and they respond violently. And keep in mind, they also both have very strong propaganda arms within their government. So it would not take a lot of effort to paint um, either Assad or Putin as, uh, you know, the next great evil, um, which I'm sure they're already doing in some areas. Yeah, I'd be I'd be inclined to agree with that. Um, just given obviously the reading of Erdogan and also just the historical antagonism between Turkey and Russia. I mean, they're two very um, 
you know, kind of bullheaded powers, so to speak, that are very proud of themselves and do not want to see the other one encroaching on each other's um, territory because they are very close to each other. And so I just don't see that as, you know, this great Turkish-Russian warming of relations. I mean, like you said, probably pragmatic, but at the same time, Turkey is still well within the sphere of NATO influence. And even if Turkey may not like necessarily all of the trappings that that entails, um, I think it's still going to hang on to that because it's still a very valuable balance against Russian power. You know, I do want to ask you guys as well on your opinions of we're, we're talking about Russian influence in the region, but what is that influence? What is Russia trying to actually achieve in that region? And I can't for the life of me, besides having a naval base propped up in Syria where it can actively influence uh, events in the Middle, in Middle East and in the uh, Mediterranean, I don't see what Russia's national interest in the region is. It doesn't need the oil. It doesn't need much of anything besides the keeping out of the Wahhabi influence from its Chechnyan region and uh, Ossetian region to stop kind of the uprisings from happening there. But I don't see how extending Russian military into the Middle East achieves that goal. So one reading I've, I've had of Putin, and I'll, I'll keep this very brief, but one analysis of his actions um, kind of refers back to his status within Russia. And so the idea of just of simply projecting Russian power and having Russia as an active um, uh, member of the international community, or in some cases, you know, ordering around other national, uh, you know, other nations in the national community, um, is a positive thing for many of the Russian people who felt for a long time like they were being um, ignored or downtrodden. And there's a lot of, you know, poverty, there's a lot of issues in, in Russia's um, um, you know, internal domestic economy. But I think on some level, we have to look at this as just anything he does where people are kind of reacting to Russian actions makes him look stronger at home. And if you are running your nation as a as an authoritarian, or at the very least as a very, very powerful uh, democratically elected person, wink, wink, uh, in Putin's case, then that means that the, the more power and, and prestige you have internationally, the more you can turn to your people and say, look, look, look how strong we are. This is how strong we've become under my leadership. Let's keep this going. So you think this is a domestic thing? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, I don't think that's the motivation for it, but I think that's that's in the back of his head at all times. I think that's that's kind of the um, the ulterior motive of like the kind of minor ulterior motive for all of his actions is that it's just more consolidation of his domestic power, while at the same time he gets to play uh, whatever, I'm not going to say God, but he gets to play, you know, the diplomatic state, international statesman he wants to play and make some decisions that other nations that he might not like have to then respond to, and that might make him feel good about himself or more powerful, and double down on his uh, support at home. I'm also kind of wondering about if the United States, and I, I understand that the United States has no coherent strategy right now, nor is it likely to in the next probably 16 years have a coherent strategy, but is it in the United States' interest for Russia to get involved in the Middle East? Because there's obviously a backlash towards U.S. presence in the Middle East. There's a backlash towards any U.S. meddling in the Middle East. So if Russia goes in and does actually start to basically become the United States of the Middle East again and aggravate everyone to no end, 
might they not get the backlash that we are getting, and we can play the role of spoilers like Russia has been playing, and try to pick up all the pieces that Russia drops because it's way too big of an issue for Russia to handle by itself. It does seem a little bit hypocritical for the United States to hop in the Middle East, screw up a lot of stuff, and then kind of wash their hands of it. <laughs> I it might it might be for the better, honestly. I don't know anymore. Um, at, but it's it's a little bit interesting that, uh, and I'm not saying that that you're saying, Steve, but um, you know, it's a little bit interesting that for many people, we've been pushing for so long for the United States to get out of Middle East politics, and now we might do it not for the right reasons, and we might do it without the proper uh, what's the word transition, uh, and we could be in a lot of trouble because of it. I don't know. It, I mean, it, you're right. It could be an interesting uh, scenario. I almost want to say a hypothetical test, you know, like a research <laughs> thing. But yeah, yeah, no joke. These are people's lives at stake, and so it's yeah. kind of a, it's kind of scary. I know for, I mean, looking at Syria, for example, um, giving Russia a free hand there has led to a lot of unnecessary death, um, and it's hard to imagine that getting any better going forward. And I'm kind of, I'm, I am a kind of a pessimist right now on U.S. relations with the Middle East countries and with Russia itself, in that. I don't think the United States has necessarily... It doesn't have the international reputation per, to try to pursue a liberal foreign policy. And I, for everyone else that's uh, liberal in the small L international relations sense, not liberal as in Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton sense, which, to be fair, those are realists. But I think that we are kind of stuck in a realist position because we don't have the domestic support, we don't have the domestic wherewithal to impact any change in the region without massive domestic upheaval, which would then affect our Middle East program, which would then lead to more Middle East problems. And so, I mean, in a, I, I understand what you say, Kurt, by these are people's lives that we are messing with. But in the end, I tend to see if we are not messing it up and we gain influence in the region over the long term, it might be more beneficial at this point with what the United States citizenship has shown to leave and to play spoiler and to play basically the bad guy, which that's what we really basically are playing, the bad guy. What does Russia have to gain uh, we've had this conversation without bringing up Donald Trump's uh, tough rhetoric on NATO. Um, he said multiple times he wants to he wants to strike a, a you know make a new deal uh, with with NATO. Um, to, That's a good point. He, yeah. he wants to get them to pay their bills. Uh, Russia has only to gain um, from the weakening of the the NATO partnership. Um, already uh, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, Northern Eastern Europe, uh, the uh, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, those countries already, uh, there's been talk of, uh, similar to with Crimea, uh, Donald Trump talking about, you know, those Russian expatriates living in those countries, yeah. um, who he needs to defend. And he's already you know, taken so, sort of, uh, what I think they, he's flown planes over. He's sort of, you know, flexed his muscles in the region, suggesting that if NATO falls apart, if NATO becomes weak, if he has any reason to believe that NATO won't act to defend uh, countries like Estonia, 
um, then he has every reason, to, you know, every motivation to move in and do the same thing he did with Ukraine. Uh, so it's, I, 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 Donald Trump has been a little bit quieter since the election um, about issues surrounding NATO, um, but he sure he definitely was tough on it during the campaign. It sounds like he wants to move in, uh, whatever making them pay their bills means. So um, definitely worth considering uh, Russian aspirations with regard to Eastern Europe and NATO. And that certainly is a really scary thing. I mean, I he I don't want anything like this to happen, but he could be playing the Dean Akiston of the 1950s again, where Dean Akiston outlined U.S. priorities around the world and didn't mention South Korea. Therefore, Russia and China encouraged North Korea to invade South Korea, and we got the Korean War because he forgot to include South Korea in the statements of where U.S. interests lie abroad. You know, uh, Donald Trump is very specifically saying that the United States has much less interests in NATO countries than we supposedly do have. And if that encourages Russian adventurism in especially the Baltic countries who are terrified of Russia, because exactly what you said, Brandon, as Putin said, Russia's borders don't stop anywhere. They extend across the world because wherever there's a Russian citizen, they will defend them. I mean, I made a corny joke about this during the last World Cup that after Russia lost, the Russian military was going to invade to protect the Russian citizens in the stadium. But this is kind of actually terrifying. <laughs> Not to play devil's advocate here, but it, it is fair for Putin to want to defend his citizens, and it is fair to project power in the same way that the United States has done. I think what is the the problem with, with our upcoming situation is that the checks against his power, uh, if you look at Germany or I guess just NATO in general, um, and Obama, you had people who were, uh, who were very easy, easily able to counteract um, pragmatic grabs of power with their own pragmatic responses. And, I don't, I mean, with Merkel, Merkel's being challenged in, in Germany, I think, uh, obviously Obama's not going to be around for next, next few years. Um, we're going to have a weird situation where you have China and Russia in their own backyard. You have a lot of traditions and rules and foreign policy that are going to be replaced with just whoever wants to do whatever. You know, everything is kind of open. And I think the Pakistan call was a terrifying reminder that any expectations of traditional, and, and the Taiwan call as well, any expectations of traditional relations have to be put on pause. And a lot of foreign leaders are going to have to make decisions that um, revolve around accepting an insult or accepting what they feel to be a grave disrespect and not going to war over it or not um, making a bunch of aggressive policies over it. And instead, tweeting at Trump. Or, you know what I mean? Like, or, or just tweeting your anger at American journalists who then question Trump about it and then things calm down, which is a very silly way to run your country. But that's what you might have to do in the coming weeks. Uh, Donald Trump's view towards NATO has allowed a lot of these countries who are in NATO to kind of wake up and say, yeah, it is not good to put all of our eggs in one collective basket in that basket, even as stable as the United States was seen to have been being, once it topples or once the eggs fall out of that basket, 
we have to defend ourselves. We don't have the military ways to defend ourselves. So you're seeing a lot of beefing up of military expenditure in these countries, which could lead to an arms race with Russia, because then you have Western Europe arming against Eastern Europe, and you have all the conditions set for a misunderstanding and a war, maybe of limited stature, but a war nonetheless. Now on to Trump's cabinet picks. We've already covered uh, Michael Flynn a little bit at least, um, but what about Trump's decision to nominate retired General Mattis to the critical position of Secretary of Defense? Mattis has earned this self-titled representation as the, quote, mad dog for his tough stance on defense issues. Uh, there is also some controversy surrounding the choice because General Mattis has only been retired for a few years, and there has been a long-standing tradition of maintaining civilian control of the military within the United States government, which is why retired military officials typically wait at least seven years before allowing themselves to be nominated for such posts. And then, of course, we have the all-encompassing position of Secretary of State, which has yet to be filled as of this recording. Will it be Rudy Giuliani? Mitt Romney, David Petraeus, or someone we haven't even heard of yet. What are your thoughts? It's interesting you mention um, the defense and state, and state is all encompassing. Um, I think the some of this stuff is going to, of course, be hard to judge. Um, the latest who is the next Secretary of State um, gossip is um, impossible to verify. I'm actually optimistic about um, General Mattis, uh, mostly because I read a piece by Robert Bateman um, in Esquire, and I'm going to quote from that right now. Um, I think that there's a very real possibility, bordering on a certainty, that Mattis might well tell Mr. Trump to get fucked at some point. <laughs> Which, <laughs> if that were to happen, might just validate the next four years on its own. Uh, but the thing is, in many ways, um, Robert Bateman argues that Mattis is attempting to sacrifice himself by taking this job, knowing that he's going to look terrible, but acting as a check against Trump because he knows that he has Trump's respect and a little bit of fear, um, which is a rare thing to get out of Donald Trump. And it's it's being a um, general, I think, for Trump gives Mattis a little bit of leeway in the way that he is going to be able to uh, deliver news and also make judgments. And he can either resign in anger later on, for example, uh, if if something horrible happens and Trump decides, you know, well, I'm going to invade so-and-so, and Mattis argues against it, and then he's ignored by resigning, by turning around and saying, you know what, I was ignored as a representative of the government, I'm, I'm taking off, he ignored the generals, right? That would be a publications disaster. And so there is a little bit of leverage there. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic, but it is a little bit odd that we're going from that seven-year tradition to let's just grab this guy that we kind of think might be really cool. So I'm not sure what you guys think about that. I feel like it might be a bad precedent to set going forward. I do think it's a very bad precedent to set. And I think that a lot of these hopes that we do have hedge on who the last Secretary of Defense was that was a general that had just retired and had to have a waiver from Congress, and that was General Marshall. And everyone goes, oh, General Marshall, he was a brilliant guy. I mean, you have the Marshall Plan, and he indeed was a brilliant guy, and he was a great Secretary of Defense and a good Secretary of State. But he also com was completely impersonal in his relations. It was joked that not even his wife called him uh, George Marshall. She also called him General Marshall, because there was not a single person on the planet that he would not allow to call him that. He was famous for going to FDR and 
FDR saying, oh, George, you're in! And G- General, uh, General Marshall turns to him and goes, my name's, my name is General Marshall. And never having those personal communications, never having those personal associations with politicians that might compromise his kind of viewpoint. He always had a very concise viewpoint. And I am, although I do love General Mattis, I've loved General Mattis for a very long time. He's a great, great guy. Um, but I'm just not so sure he will be willing or able to have that martial like separation between himself and the position. I'm also kind of concerned about the number of generals that are being appointed to different positions in this government, not because I don't think that most of them are competent, and I do believe that the majority of the generals which are being uh, put to post are competent generals, but generals, uh, military, uh, anyone that served in the military has a certain viewpoint. And civilians have a different viewpoint, which is why it's always nice to have the number of civilians and the number of generals in the room, because you can get overwhelmed by their opinions when they're all agreeing with each other, because they all have a certain way of looking at it. And that doesn't necessarily mean the generals are right. They're not always right on all issues. But if you have too many of them in the same room, it's going to be hard to say, there are four generals here saying that I should do this, but I don't want to do this. But the, there's four generals saying that I should, so obviously I should go with them against my better intuition. And not saying Donald Trump has better intuition, but I am saying that in terms of decision-making, it really tilts the decision-making of this administration towards a much more hawkish sort of view. I agree, it does, um, but at the same time, perhaps having a few more... Um... I guess kind of hard-headed officials in the cabinet might also be able to, kind of as Kurt was saying before, just tell Donald Trump, this is how it is, you can't do this, even if you're the president. And he might actually be able to listen to them in some regard. But unfortunately, what about when all those generals are saying that the Iran deal was a huge mistake and that we need to get out of it as soon as possible because Iran was killing our soldiers in Iraq, therefore we can't trust them now. I mean, they are right. Iran was definitely providing uh, penetrating devices, penetrating explosives, armor-penetrating explosives, I'm sorry, to the soldiers in Iraq that then used them against U.S. soldiers. But that doesn't mean that you have, you forsake all relations with them down the road. And if you have more civilians in that process that look at it and go, yeah, this is a really bad we we don't agree with this deal but it's a deal nonetheless and we should contain we should continue it for xyz measures instead of someone that might look at it and go Patton said that if we had just invaded Russia after World War II we never would have had any of this sort of stuff and that sort of viewpoint would have ended in a nightmare Trump's obsession with Patton is certainly a very strange thing trying to understand it. It's just a side comment, but he brings up Patton a lot. He does. I really think that he thinks that Patton was anything more than a brilliant battlefield general. In many ways, Patton was a brilliant tactical general, but I mean, in terms of strategy, the guy was 
nowhere near where he should be. He once said that he should never be anywhere near politics. And I think Donald Trump should take that into consideration when he uses Patton as his ex- chevalier of anything. Well, and, and pa- Patton fits in with his political correctness spiel because the whole, uh, you know, accusing PTSD uh, suffering soldiers are being cowards or, or, you know, girly men or whatever, whatever the hell he did, you know, and that kind of um, violent response, I think, appeals to Trump's very silly understanding of how the military actually works. Um, And in particular, the idea that discipline and, you know, all that kind of stuff is the only way to, to be, to kind of grow and be a strong man, which is funny because, you know, it's a couple of times when he talked about his military school days, he would talk about how he went through more intense stuff than soldiers do. And that, of course, is silly and wrong. Um, and I think he's been checked on that a couple of times. But he, I think in the back of his mind, he believes because he went to a military-style boarding school that he is closer to a military man than a non-military man. And Patton is, in, in his mind, the epitome of a military man who said it like it was and didn't take no guff from no one and, you know, he would probably spank his kids, which, of course, you should do. That kind of shit. Um, very, very stupid and elementary understanding of how the military works and how discipline works, but that's what we're dealing with here. So a question to follow up on, on that and, the, and Stephen's earlier comment, uh, with Trump selecting all of these generals, with Trump uh, perhaps having a strange view of how the military works, well, uh, do you think that there's anything we can glean from his foreign policy thinking? Um, with, yeah, taking into consideration how he's, you know, picking all of these generals to serve in cabinet positions, um, things like that. I think that you can glean a lot from it, and I think you can look at the past positions that some of these generals have taken on issues. And uh, the one that comes to my mind first, just because I've studied it a little bit, is Iran. Obviously, none of these generals like Iran for various reasons which means that any foreign policy towards Iran is going to be very, very biased. But I think it's going to be very interesting when it comes to Russia, where basically only General Flynn, who's not even a real general anymore, now he's a politician, but only him, only he is in favor of real better relations with Russia. Everyone else is very skeptical about Russia, for good reason. And I I don't know how that's going to shape in the kind of the, how, when the policy, I guess, deliberates on decisions. Obviously, you had a template for that before in the Obama administration, where there was a very contentious relationship between Obama and his generals. And Obama, a lot of times, wouldn't listen to his generals on certain issues, or generals would be very, very upset at Obama for decisions on certain issues. So I think it's very real to believe that while these generals will dissent from him on a whole bunch of different issues, that Trump will have the final say, and for better or worse. So I guess, what are your thoughts on moving a little bit to Secretary of State? Um, What do you think about some of the picks that have been kind of floated around so far? So obviously Rudy Giuliani is uh, history's greatest monster and should not be given anywhere anywhere (laughs) near the amount of power that um, that position would give. Uh, Mitt Romney, yeah, that would be it, it would be disaster. I, and, and I don't, I tend to, um, I, I catch myself doing this because I've been hyperbolic in the past. I 
I was terrified of Mitt Romney back in the day, and that's part of the effect of these uh, news bubbles we live in. Um, I mean, Rudy Giuliani would actually be horrifying, uh, in, in at least because he has no experience doing anything of the sort. Um, Mitt Romney would be fine. He would be competent. Uh, he would probably be ignored and ostracized within the government, but uh, there's a possibility he could do good things. Um, I've, I've been hearing about this, uh, what, how's it pronounced? Um, uh, Dana Rohrabacher, who, uh, in a political article was titled Putin's favorite congressman being floated as potential secretary of state. So, I mean, you can't make up these different people that are being pulled out of the weeds to be thrust into this powerful role. Um, but I think it's important to understand that for a lot of people, the question, a lot of uh, conservatives, the question was, what should we do? How should we serve uh, in this administration? Should we take a step back? Should we instead ask ourselves, you know what, this is a sinking ship. We can't, if we, if we validate fascism, if we validate this person we think is horrible, that will give him more power. Um, Elliot Cohen, who is a respected by many people, um, conservative, uh, I, I'm not sure if he's a foreign policy expert. Um, yeah, he is. Yeah, just, yeah, conservative, uh, uh, foreign policy member of that establishment, um, tweeted this in, on November 15th. After exchange with Trump transition team, change my recommendation. Stay away. They're angry, arrogant, screaming, you lost, will be ugly. Now, Cohen had before that written an article about how basically ruminating on the idea of serving or not serving. And he had argued, despite having a lot of problems with Trump before that, that it was his duty as a patriot to serve his country and act as a check on that kind of power. Um, and when he broached the subject or the subject was broached to him, the exchange got really uh, gross and sad. And so I think What's interesting is that Secretary of State is kind of a microcosm of all these different issues in that more traditional picks, more traditional uh, people who might do a consistent and good job in the role have been pushed out and or have not volunteered themselves or have, have re refused the invitation. And so we're left with people like Giuliani or Rohrabacher or uh, whomever. That we can, I, I honestly don't know <laughs> who these people are some of the time. I have to Google a little bit because they're kind of on the, the lower tier of conservative thinkers and policymakers. What really terrifies me about the Secretary of State is the idea that the only, the absolute only qualified picks that Trump can find for this, again, are more generals. You have General Petraeus, who left the military in disgrace because of revealing classified information. He was a brilliant guy before that, but I mean, that should be a disqualifier for Secretary of State. And you have a, I know they're floating another admiral who I can't remember right now, but I mean, this admiral was vetted for the vice presidency for Clinton for a little while. And these seem to be the only competent picks, real competent picks that will be listened to. Now, Stephen, it's, it's important to understand, did any of these generals or admirals have problems with their email security? Because if they did, <laughs> that's the true disqualifying <laughs> thing. Any kind of affairs of mistresses... Uh, anything else, we can't really judge that, but email security is the really important way to judge trustworthiness. Lock them up. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's, that brings up another good point is, I mean, General Petraeus didn't, got off without a, uh, actual prison sentence by the hair of his whatever, skin of his teeth. But he's a very strange pick. For Secretary of State, and as he said, it's unless I guess he hasn't had his email hacked, which is a good thing, unless he wouldn't be allowed in and he should be locked up. Well, as we all know, it, you know, it's all about the emails. 
doesn't matter if you talk to reporters or do any nefarious dealings with them regarding classified information as long as it's not in an email format. But, I mean, that that aside, do we feel that Petraeus could be a pretty reasonable Secretary of State choice? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think Stephen was right. This is a smart guy, a competent guy, who could do very positive things. The The problem is that the bar for disqualifying has been moved. You know, it, back in the day, it was it would be disqualifying to brag about sexual assault. It would be disqualifying to mock a disabled reporter. It would be disqualifying to do any of the hundreds of things that Trump did. You know, to uh, to, to mock a gold star family, like all of these things, would we would assume would be uh, just the end of his campaign. And so, I think the trickle down effect of that is that you know his picks, his nominations, um, he can argue we're changing politics; the rules don't apply anymore. And some of his base will eat that up, and political journalists will kind of squirm. But I mean, is he right? I think the rules might have changed if we elected an actual fascistic moron like what else what other rules do we have what why not petraeus why not someone who's uh under investigation with these different things and escaped uh you know jail time by that that tiniest little bit why not him as long as he appeals to uh trump's consideration of what a true man is and i agree that as i said i think he would make a great secretary of state he was the only commander in iraq who had the foresight to basically ignore U.S. precedent and open the border between Syria and Iraq to allow supplies in from Syria, which stabilized the northern Kurdish region, which he was in charge of. That's what made his ab- his entire fame was the absolute success he had up there that no one else was able to have. But I worry about the precedent not really set for the political transition, because I think that will be able to be, I guess, sorted out in the long term. I really worry about the precedent that this sets in terms of military tradition, because we have had uh, a lot of these generals have become more and more political, more and more political, and it is really kind of corrupting how these generals should be thinking. There's been a lot of outreach from generals on places like War on the Rocks, stating, stay away from politics. This is not what you should be involved in. This is, you have a duty to your troops, you have a duty to the troops that you have led if you are retired. You do not have a place in this political maelstrom that's going on to take a side and on a lot of these people like James Mattis and like Petraeus basically sway the entire military vote one way or another depending on how you vote or how you perceive it to be because you are so respected it goes back to the if you are a role model you have to be more considerate of your actions than others and we are saying to this to the entire generation of general officers which are coming up don't worry if you give off bad information as long as you are brilliant in the field you have a place after this, it doesn't matter if you screw up to epic proportions, you have a place after it. Precisely. I mean, it's the idea that national security should be about policy, not politics. That's kind of sad, too, is that I was I, I was considering about uh, realism and liberalism a little while ago, and 
I was talking to somebody about it, I forget who it was, but I basically mentioned it. He goes, oh yeah, the conservatives are the realists and the liberals are the liberals. And I go, that's, that really shouldn't be how it is. They split across spectrums. No, 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 you have no idea what you're talking about. And it's foreign policy is becoming hyper-politicized. And the movement of any soldier, any um, general officer to one political party or the other absolutely warps the system. It's the reason why generals since Patton, since who knows whoever, have stayed out of politics because they have a corrupting influence when they get involved in politics. So sorry to interrupt, but um, does that say something about our political traditions? If that tradition has been so strong to dissuade American generals to from political office because that's not their role, this is not how we do things here. Is that concept, is that is that uh, mindset widespread enough within the military to kind of um, uh, make this work in the short term? Because there's not going to be a military junta um, that's appointed in the next six months because they know that's not how that works. Is that a possibility? I mean, my, my knowledge of military culture is relatively limited, but um, from my understanding, I, I think American institutions are strong enough to withstand this sort of thing for at least a few years. And it's not sort of the corruption of the institutions itself. It's the corruption of, I guess it would be the institutions, the military is an institution. If General Mattis was to have declared for Republican, uh, for as a Republican for presidency, like he was really being encouraged to, to counter Donald Trump in the primaries, you would have had the Marine Corps become Republican. And that is a terrifying idea that an entire wing of the military become can become one or the other. That's why uh, uh, General, oh my gosh, Eisenhower didn't declare who he was going to be running for as a presidency. And in fact said, I'm not going to run for presidency because whoever he declared for, the military would become that party. And more often than not, it's the Republicans, but that's not only a Republican thing. If you have General, um, let's just say General Petraeus declare for the Democrats, and he was going to be a Democratic leader, you're going to have a large portion of the army kind of start rethinking, going, well, maybe I should be a Democrat. And that's the hyper-politicization of the army is, or the military is absolutely terrifying. It it does say something about um, the, the the danger of having institutions like that uh, become politicized. Um, there has been a surprising number, a shocking number of police unions and and police stations, police station, police officers, um, actively uh, advocating for Donald Trump. Uh, and I think that was one of the. I, I know Jamel Bowie from Slate had a couple of comments on this. That does that say something about the institution of policing in our state, in our country right now, that that the vast majority of police officers are not only comfortable with, but are actively pushing for someone who uh, is from one party and is the most extreme right-wing version of that party. Um, I know that it, for a moment it made me feel a little bit less safe, um, despite the fact that I'm in Utah, which is a very odd conservative place, not quite like the norm nationwide. Uh, but as far as politicizing a institution goes, the police have already gone. 
So what does that say for the future of domestic policy, not so much foreign policy? And I think that comes back to, there was an article written in the New York Times by an anonymous author, but he was a colonel in the U.S. Army, and he basically encouraged, and I don't agree with this, it's kind of a weird sort of way of thinking about it, but he encouraged his fellow soldiers not to vote, because a vote for, um, well, yeah, a vote for the commander-in-chief would be tantamount to bribery, a vote against the commander-in-chief would be tantamount to saying that they don't trust in his leadership, neither of which is accessible. So there is a very real conflict of interest between democratic principles and corrupting principles in that, as the um, police unions show, they all go Republican, therefore, I mean, and most police officers are a little bit more apt to be Republican, but a lot of them aren't Republican. So what happens when the uh, police union endorses a Republican candidate? What does that say, and what does that give to members of the citizen, uh, civilian community right now who want to become police members? Should they be more Republican? And I'm not, again, I'm not encouraging that they shouldn't be allowed to vote, or they shouldn't be allowed to take stances, but they should make it absolutely 100% clear that they do not speak for the police. They do not speak for the army. If they show up to a political rally, they should be wearing a suit and tie. They shouldn't have a single piece of information on them that says who they are attached to because they are showing up as a civilian, not a member of the police or army, navy, air force, marines, etc. I agree. And I wonder um, to what extent this is because of the uniqueness of the two candidates that are currently, you know, or the two candidates of this election. Would we tend to see this in a case where, you know, say it was Bernie Sanders and Jeb Bush? Really good question. I don't really know. I I, I read a book late, recently uh, called The Generals by Tom Ricks, and he explores uh, the tradition of general officers in the United States military from World War II to the present. And it really does talk about how more and more often, political or uh, general officers are becoming more and more politicized, and so I'm not sure this is so much a thing as it's happening because Donald Trump's running against Hillary Clinton, more than it has been already politicized. Therefore, this is showing now, and it's one or one or the other way. It should be fought, but I think it's a longer-term trend that is just being revealed by the contentiousness of this election. With things like you know police unions um, supporting the Republican nominee, um, and that I can't really speak to the history of it. Perhaps someone knows that more, but I think a lot of that had to do with the, the politicization of one Black Lives Matter on on the one side, and uh, what I'll I guess I'll generalize as, as what I see on Facebook called uh, Blue Lives Matter, um, and I, I don't think that necessarily had anything to do with these particular candidates that 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 became a hot topic in in, in this election it's particularly because i don't i don't think hillary clinton really cared about what might be considered the the democratic side of particular conflict that she didn't really voice much um in favor against police and in favor of i i don't think it was really connected to the candidates I think you're right, Brandon. And, and, you know, Hillary worked really hard to, to be supportive of, of police to the point that, um, a lot of activists that I, that I keep track of were upset that she kept 
putting the onus on protesters, on the black community to police themselves and to act in a better and more positive way, and very rarely on the police to to do better. And yet, I mean, I think these were already politicized groups, and I think for a lot of people, political identity has become uh, a core part of who they are. And I know for the United States in particular, this is a slightly new development, but I think for the past so 15, 20 years, we've been slowly drifting towards this idea that when someone asks, who are you, you might not say, I am a fan of the San Diego Charger football team, but you might say, well, I am a Democrat, I am a Republican. And you might not even say, I'm conservative. You might say, I'm a Republican, which is different, right? Because being conservative for a long time meant an ideology that did not always fit with your party. Whereas lately, uh, your party then informs your ideology. If you're a Republican, your ideology shifts to account for that. And so I think that's part of what, what Trump did uh, very, very cleverly in the election was that he realized it didn't really matter what he believed. It mattered how he believed it and who he believed it with. And so it just mattered that he had his base and they really didn't like Black Lives Matter. They didn't like immigrants. They didn't like uh, Muslims in general um, and, and Mexicans as well. And so he just hit on those things over and over and over again. And what's frightening to me is that many police officers agreed with that, right? That idea that Muslims and Mexicans and other immigrants are inherently dangerous. Um, and we need someone who can speak to that to be our president. Uh, I don't want to say it made me feel unsafe because, I, again, I'm in Utah, I'm a relatively safe state. But it did make me feel good uh, as a Middle Eastern American. I'd like to close uh, with a new segment I'm calling Key Terms. So sometimes the vocabulary around international relations and foreign policy can be confusing for people who haven't spent a lot of time studying it. This week, I'm picking the terms balancing and bandwagoning. So these both refer to how a weaker power tends to relate to a stronger power in the international scene. Bandwagoning is where a power, say such as Belarus, aligns itself with a stronger neighbor, in this case it would be Russia. The idea being that the stronger power will allow it to have a little bit of wiggle room in uh, international affairs in exchange for not opposing the stronger power. Uh, balancing is where basically the opposite occurs. So this is where a weaker power will align against a stronger neighbor by allying with that power's rival. So um, in this sense, they are balancing against the stronger power. One example of this would be, say, Japan's alliance with the United States as a means of balancing against China. So uh, mine is a little bit ironic, considering we spent a lot of the time doing this. But the term I want to talk about is red baiting. Um, it has been mentioned a lot across the Twitter sphere that a lot of Democrats were very comfortable lapsing into a Cold War mentality, where every bad thing that happened must have been a Russian commie plot, except not commie, replace commie with Putin, um, and that that sort of thinking is not productive or very thoughtful. Uh, basically, when someone says red baiting, it's, it's a way to dismiss uh, the argument that the person is making because they're simply falling back on a um, ancient American tradition of fear of Russia. And there is some fair criticism there because a lot of our discussion of Russia um, on this podcast involves trying to read into Putin's thought process. We don't treat him in the same way that we would treat other leaders. 
Um, and that's in part because he's more aggressive than other leaders. Um, I am mentally catching myself as I make these judgments and I think, am I just being part of this red baiting trend? Um, the answer is probably a little bit of yes and no. Uh, you could also argue that the acclaim of red baiting is in itself a way to uh, disguise Russia's aggression. So I don't know. We're just going to go in a circular, uh, never-ending cycle here. But that's the term that I've been thinking about the past couple weeks. I had mine on containment theory as originally thought of by George Keenan back in the day. And that was, it's a little bit misunderstood now. And you say that you can contain Iran or you contain uh, North Korea. But what containment really means is that the internal contradictions of a country are so great that it will fall by itself if left alone. Therefore, what you should do is balance its power, but not engage it. So it is a very off-hands way of saying kind of regime change, but internal regime change. And it's misapplied a lot of the times nowadays because, I mean, you look at Iran and does Iran have internal contradictions in its government structure and philosophy that would force it to fall? It's debatable. Does North Korea? No, because North Korea is completely totalitarian and has no real philosophy other than Kim Jong-un is awesome. So containment isn't really applicable a lot of the times in the world nowadays because it does it is a country-centric first philosophy, so it revolves around the country that is being applied to and the internal domestic affairs of that country. It does not have anything to do with, other than maybe a little bit of balancing around, but it doesn't have anything to do with any aggressive posture or any overt actions taken by other countries against said country. I'll, I'll pass this week since I haven't had a chance to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You can do two next week. How about that? Oh, sure. <laughs> hey, at least you didn't answer like uh, someone caught without their homework. Like uh, Donald Trump caught without his homework. Some fantastic like words. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Kurt, and Brandon, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog and website. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com. Like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you decide to listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Close enough.